you're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. This week, and every week of course, we're celebrating Brooklyn's black history and future. When it comes to Black History Month, it wasn't really something I was focused upon in, in high school, elementary school, middle school, and whatnot. I didn't really start learning more about it until I got into college. Just being on campus around so many different people, different viewpoints on life and whatnot, it really like started to, to gauge my interest to to want to learn more. So with that being said, as I got older and I started learning more, I started to feel more empowered. I'm not going to lie. I started to feel more empowered about my people, what we've done, um, the things that we've accomplished. And it got me to a point where I was wondering, like, why isn't this information, like, shared? Like, as an adult now, I, f- I feel like it's something that should definitely be pressed upon in, in like, in education for the fact that, you know, African-Americans really did a major hand in helping build this this country. And I feel like, you know, now that we're trying to move forward to a place of, like, equality and whatnot, I feel like that's something that, that should be shared upon to give more people like me earlier inspiration, earlier motivation. Every time this month rolls around, I personally learn something new. I personally learn more about an African-American who invented some invention that I use on a daily basis that I didn't even know about. It makes me very prideful because at the same time it shows me that the sky is the limit because to this day i'm still learning more and more about my people more and more about my heritage more and more about even my own personal journey and like where i'm trying to go and as i learn more throughout black history month it inspires me to do more and it inspires me to push myself to really make a name to to do something because all these people have done it in the past they were great inventors, they were great scientists, they were great mathematicians. They were able to face all these challenges against prejudice, lack of resources, and they still were able to overcome it. It shows me that no matter what I endure, I can always reflect on history to find a story of somebody of my of my race who encountered it or found some type of solution to overcome it. So to me, with Black History Month, it shows me that there's always an answer out there to anything that I'm trying to do. And if I ever feel like there's something that I can't accomplish, take some time, sit back, do a little bit more research and just read more about the inventors of the past that never really got their roses while they were around. At the end of the day, you never know what your creation, whether it's art, whether it's an item, whether it's some type of emotion that you help and invoke within people. You never know like how far to go in life and how many people that it'll help along the way. Growing up, Every time I heard of Black History Month, I always referred it to something dealing with slavery, something dealing with a negative vibe. And as I got older, it was nice to be able to shed a a new light on it. And, you know, being in a position where I'm actually able to tell stories of Black people who I know, who who I'm close to, who are doing great, amazing things, it helps me feel like I'm creating Black history. God got us, then we gonna be all right. Right here in Brooklyn, USA. This is me, Devin Blackwell.
I was born August 16, 1999, four years after my brother DeWitt Blackwell. I'm the daughter of David Blackwell Jr. and Denise Handred Blackwell, who raised us both in Silver Spring, Maryland, and in a way continue to do so. David has a sister, Lisa Blackwell Brown, making her my aunt and making both of them the children of Agnes and David Blackwell Sr., my grandparents. This is what I know, on my dad's side at least, and for some reason, I never felt the need to dig any deeper. Last month, my grandma sent my brother and I a letter stating that we must up our conversations. She's not wrong. I'm terrible at keeping in touch, whether that be through phone calls, emails, letters. Point is, reaching out isn't my strong suit. Her grandmother died when she was 16, and she said she doesn't remember a conversation she's had with her. She doesn't want that to be the case with us. I don't want that to be the case either, but the possibility is extremely unlikely. My grandma is a great woman. I remember all the Christmas mornings spent with her and the Easter egg baskets and all the weekend visits. There's warmth at grandma and grandpa's house, the exact warmth you'd expect grandparents to exude. She's very important to me, although I don't really know anything about our family's history and that's because I've never asked, leaving me to imagine. What were my ancestors like? Would they like me? And I was comfortable until I wasn't, not with just existing, having no clue how I came to be. I finally got interested enough to wonder about the past. Hi, Devin, this is Grandma. Hey, I found something that I want to read to you. I don't know whether you can use it or not, okay? So I simply asked my grandma and outpoured an arsenal of letters, postcards, photos, and documents, all of which I've never seen but are all distantly connected. A family archive readily available to piece together right in front of me all this time. I'm Agnes Wilhelmina Marshall Blackwell, and I'm 73 years old. It's hard to say. And I am the daughter of Alice and Wilson Marshall. This is Alice Marshall. I know nothing about her, but we're related. She's my great-grandmother, making her my grandma's mother, and we've never met. She died in 1998, one year before I was born. My mother was a fantastically smart lady. She had four children, all girls, one being grandma, the youngest. Yvonne Joyce Mercedes. Joyce is 78 now. Yvonne is deceased. Mercedes is 75. Nope. No, she's 76. She was a teacher. My dear Miss Marshall, I am sorry to say in reply to your letter that we have no vacancies in your field. Mrs. Marshall, I regret to advise that we have no permanent teaching position to which we can appoint you for the coming year. We shall be glad to consider you for such suitable substitute work should such need develop. Schools are segregated. Maybe there just were not funds for black schools. And you're not going to have a black teacher in a white school. The positions were very scarce at that time. Her parents stressed education, and that's why they sent her to school to Baltimore. She was persistent, and she knew her worth. She actually went back to college when she was in her 60s. She got her degree, and she taught some years after that. I see my grandma on her smile. 
They look similar and are probably similar in a million other ways. We're all products of people who came before us, and Alice is no different. There was one picture of my grandmother, grandfather, and my mother. The expectations her parents had for her were the ones she had for herself. It's a cycle that never seems to end. She was instrumental in getting us to where we are as her children. She encouraged us always to do our best. If we're all products of our past, why is it so easy to forget? The letters were addressed to Alice Miles up to 1939 when she began to get congratulations on her wedding. Dearest Alice, dearest Alice, Alice, dear Alice, dearest Alice, of course I know you're at home, enjoying thrills that only happily married folks can boast. What are you doing for yourself and what are you doing for Marshall? I have looked forward to the day you would marry. She really wasn't that hip on getting married. She loved to dance, she loved to go to dances and just have a good time. She really wasn't thinking in terms of, of marriage as such. Her aunt didn't get married. Her mother was the only one who got married. Estelle oh. didn't marry and neither did um, Frances. And she just thought that she wouldn't bother about getting married either. And then I guess she decided, well, I guess I can marry him. He's okay. So <laughs> she married Dad. The names Aunt Estelle and Aunt Frances keep coming up. How does Miss Frances keep so well and Miss Estelle? Introducing the postcards dating from 1906 into the 20s, consisting of updates from Annie Estelle Price and her sister Frances Price. There was a picture of Estelle, her aunt. On the back of it, it says that Estelle is deceased and Frances is living. She was mom's aunt. She was my great aunt. So she was your great great then and I know they were close to each other and to Alice. Do I remember great Aunt Frances? I remember being in bed with her, sleeping with her, while I climb in her bed or whatever, because she would watch me when Mom was working. So I was maybe about four or five years old. I just don't have much of a recollection of her. None of those letters or postcards are extravagant. They're ordinary, they're familiar, the family tree is growing, and some sort of lineage is being traced. But as I look at their portraits, I still see strangers. It's strange to look at someone while searching for a connection. That's the neat part about it. You look at them and say, hey, okay, all right, but and how long ago was that? I look at Estelle's photo the most and even get a little emotional. It's frustrating, longing to talk to people I've never met, can you really piece together a person through their writing, through a single photo? These pieces of paper make up such a small portion of their being. So how much weight can they actually have in creating a narrative? Would I be the person I am today had I shown an interest in my family's past as a child? Or am I placing too much pressure on the shoulders of people I've never met to guide me? It's an arrogant way to look at things, wondering how all of their choices led to me, when in reality I didn't exist to them but it's interesting to think that one turn could make me a completely different person. As I'm sitting here, trying to connect faces to names scribbled in ink, some remain just that, faces. The only person I would know in any of those pictures would be Mom. If Mom was in the picture, I would recognize her, but I would not recognize any, anyone else. There's questions I would ask. What was Marilyn like back then? What did you do for fun? Are you happy? In hindsight, it would have been so great if we had taken the time with mom to 
identify the pictures and stuff like that. But like all things, there is an end. People stop existing, physically at least, and all that's left are the friends who remembered. These are all questions that can still be asked, not of them, but of the people that are present. Again, I'm really, really bad at keeping in touch, and I know that's something I'll come to regret one day. Regret not using the time I had talking to the ones I love. I don't want to look at a photo and wonder what they were like, what they've experienced, not when I have the opportunity to ask them myself. So what do we know? I know I'm Devin Blackwell, sister of Dewey Blackwell, and now a new auntie, I know I'm the daughter of two loving parents and grandparents, and I now know of a long line of independent and strong people who stood before me. I don't know everything, but I know enough to remember. Okay, look, you take care now. You too. Okay, love you. <laughs> love you too. Bye. Bye-bye. Set against the backdrop of black prosperity that spanned the 1920s, the Greenwood District of Tusla, Oklahoma, was a Mesopotamia of black success, known today as Black Wall Street. It was a standing representation of black prosperity, and missed the period marked by racial tensions that manifested in actual race riots. In spite of the ubiquitous oppression and violence, Tusla was home to 600 businesses, including, but not limited to, grocery stores, local newspapers, real estate agencies, banks, and healthcare clinics. Even in today's society, in which self-made business owners dominate the economy, Black Wall Street remains as an exemplar of entrepreneurship, owned in part to one of the most successful Black men of his time, the town's founder, O.W. Gurley. This vision of Black ownership began with Gurley's perhaps symbolic purchase of 40 acres of land, which he only sold to other African-Americans. Black Wall Street served as a beacon of light, where many African-Americans fleeing the oppression of the South found not only refuge, but opportunity. As brightly as this community shined, it was suddenly and violently snuffed out over a hellish Memorial Day weekend in 1921, when the citizens of a Black utopia experienced hell on earth. Men, women, and children were slaughtered in the streets. Businesses looted and homes burnt to the ground. The smoke could be seen from a distance as this prosperous community burned for two days. Scorched earth was all that remains of the 40 acres that once represented a landmark of hope. From the ashes of Tusla, Oklahoma, young black entrepreneurs molded it into new endeavors and businesses of their own. Though Black Wall Street was lost to the flames of hatred, the business minds and business will of black innovators was not. I feel like there's going to be a point where everybody's going to have to own something or have something of their selves that is actually going to work for them as opposed to working for somebody else. I felt like, why not start now? A lot of people start later on in life. It's like, I have the knowledge now, so why not? My name is Alexander, Alexander Joe, a.k.a. Lex on God, a.k.a. Lex on Moss. I was always fascinated with learning about kids that were like my age that were investing and, you know, just making money 
that were like 16, and then by the time they turned 18, they became millionaires. A popular topic or subject is like LLC, taxes, credit, and I just wanted to execute on those things. I wanted to take that knowledge and actually do something with it. I became plant-based when I was about 19 years old. I wanted to not waste my talent, not waste my knowledge, and actually do something. People around my age that are in the hood sits on the knowledge because they don't feel like they have a place or an outlet to express those things or execute on it. During the quarantine, I decided to detox. And as I was learning more and more about detoxing, watching a lot of Instagram influencers who really knowledgeable on these things, I said, you know what, why don't I actually do something about this? It's a need-based business. People are coming to me about it. They want to live a better life. I'm gaining the chance and the experience to actually help people, which is the more important part. And the people are learning skills, they're learning knowledge on how to live a healthy lifestyle, which they can pass on to the future generations or to their friends. So I said, you know what, go into business for CMOS. CMOS is a sea algae or seaweed. It's usually anywhere off of the Atlantic Ocean. It latches onto like a small pebble, which is where the 92 minerals come from, and takes its nutrients from out of the pebble. CMOS has been used for generations, especially in Jamaica or anywhere in the islands, really, to cure a lot of ailments and illnesses. You can consume sea moss by just eating it, you know, take a spoonful, two spoonfuls a day. It gives you a lot of energy and you're getting your daily nutritional benefits within those couple of spoonfuls. A lot of people don't like the texture. You can put it in your smoothies, which is what I always do. You can you put it on your skin. It's good for like eczema. It's good for acne. It's, it's great for so many different things. Since sea moss is like in high demand, now it's gained a lot of popularity. You have farms that grow pool sea moss, which isn't good because you're not really getting the nutrients that you're supposed to get. Some of the, the signs that I know from off top where you can differentiate between your sea moss, if it's real or if it's fake. If it has a whole bunch of salt sticking onto the sea moss, then it's no good. I always talk about executing and really innovating and advancing in life and actually owning a business, but I'm scared. Meanwhile, my boy Kenny's over here running a couple businesses, doing his thing, and I'm like, yo, you know, let me give him a call. I called him like late at night. He was like, yo, what is there to think about? Do it. If you need anything, let me know. I'll be right there. It's like a big bang with entrepreneurs looking to get in the game. Before you write that business plan, study your history because with this year being the 100 year of the Black Wall Street Massacre, it's gonna give you the confidence to execute. My name is Kenny Emanuel, founder of CEO Syndicate and partner of Dynamic Wealth. CEO Syndicate is a company that will be launching March 1st, helping young people take their idea from the idea phase to the startup phase. Dynamic Wealth is a financial advisor firm. We help with holistic type of planning, insurance, retirement account, mutual funds, RAs, anything regarding personal financing and legacy building. Sometimes in our community, we have the potential, but we just need the right people around us. Lex and I, we started building that real relationship. I told Lex, you may not know what needs to get done, but you will learn through the process of trying. I seen the potential, he just needed that guidance because there's no better experience than a real life experience. I spoke to Kenny, I told him my concerns. 
I've never done like any sort of shipping or anything like that. I was scared of doing things of that nature. So he connected me with a fellow CMOS mate of mine. His CMOS brand is CMOS of Boss. He helped consult me and gave me sort of a blueprint to follow by just to help with my business. And when I got the blueprint of really how to maneuver my business, I went back to Kenny and I said, yo, all right, where do I go from here? Let's get this LLC going. A lot of people don't have the luxury of being close with a person that own a business to network and grow. And that's why they fell. There's so many moving parts. Aside from just helping him grow, I helped him with his thought process about business. If you have a product, start thinking about how is my consumer gonna be able to connect with the product pre-transaction, during transaction, and post-transaction. That goes back to your packaging, your marketing, and how you follow through with the email after they purchase it. Because the hardest thing is to get a person to buy into you and buy into your business. Now you have to sustain the bag. It's never how much money you make, it's always how much money you keep. Because with investments, anything from business to stocks to life insurance or whatever it is, investments have to be able to mature. I took the money that I made previously and I just reinvested it back into the business. I hadn't used any of it on myself. I invested into getting high quality CMOS from St. Lucia and then I spent like two to three months working on a website, got my LLC, and I decided to change the packaging, you know, make it a nice warmer color. So once 2021 hit, I finally relaunched the business, which was like the best feeling. And it's been about a month and, you know, I'm learning as I go, but things are just flourishing. And I'm just really happy that I actually took this risk and this journey. With Lex being in the health field, it's a new thing to him. You have to put the work in. What's your niche? If you want to grow in business, so you want to learn and you want to see what the response is from the consumer, so you're able to make some adjustments because nothing is perfect in the beginning. We all on the same journey, had the same mindset of approaching the same thing and what we want, but just have a different perspective so we can learn from each other. With everything going on and you know the many things that I do, this is one of the ways that I can give back to the community, especially to people my age and younger. There's a false sense that libraries and archives are neutral preservers of information. But the fight to make libraries more equitable, safer spaces for Black and POC patrons and workers isn't new. For movements to get police out of public libraries, to the introduction of critical cataloging practices, to the creation of independent community archives. Shanta Smith-Cruz is an archivist at the Lesbian Herstory Archives in Park Slope, Brooklyn who's thinking critically about the history and future of these spaces. What's great about being a faculty librarian is that I get to do community work as my scholarship. You know, some people do peer-reviewed journal articles about reference stats, and that's fine and very important and useful, but my interest is focused on bridging communities. My name is Shanta Smith-Cruz. People call me Sean. My full-time job is at NYU Libraries. I'm an associate dean there. I'm from Brooklyn, and since I'm from Brooklyn and have lived there most of my life, I was heavily connected to activists and organizing circles in New York City, which had me as a youth organizer um, on the streets from when I was like 16. And so I met the Lesbian Herster Archives. It's a volunteer collective, so no one works there. It's very much labor of love, which has been how it has been since the beginning. 
From newsletter number one of the Lesbian History Archives, June 1975. Our statement of purpose. The Lesbian History Archives exists to gather and preserve records of lesbian life and activities so that future generations of lesbians will have ready access to materials relevant to their lives. My father's a Rastafarian, my mother is, was raised black nationalist and her parents only spoke Spanish. So there was an interesting like self-segregation that we tacked onto, which I embraced. I really believed in separatist spaces and spaces that were self-claimed. Choosing communities that were closed was also really important to me. There was a self-proclaimed lesbian space through the archive. I often say like LHA could have been like a knitting group and I would have been a part of it because it was a collective and it owned its own space. It just so happened that it was an archive. No academic, political or sexual credentials are required to use the collection. Race and class must be no barrier for use of or inclusion in the archives. There had been a through line at the Lesbian History Archives that black lesbians weren't there. Like anytime I staffed, people would open the door and be like, I didn't expect you to open it, right? They would be surprised that I was participating in the collection. The Lesbian History Archives was still seen as a white space. In Cheryl Denier's film, The Watermelon Woman, she stages the Center for Lesbian Information Technology, or CLIT, as the Lesbian History Archives, and it was a parody. It was also like an, an homage, right? Welcome to the Center for Lesbian Information and Technology. Actually, we're very disorganized here, but it's because we're just a volunteer-run collective. And you know how hard it is. Things take time. But, you know, someday we're going to have a great system where people are going to donate materials, and then they're going to be logged, they're going to be categorized, they're going to be sorted, they're going to be stored. But right now, they're just in boxes. Well, um, I came to find out about the Black Collection on Lesbians. Is, is that a separate collection, or...? It's very separate. Oh. We received a very generous gift from the Hysteria Foundation, but they wanted it to be used exclusively for African-American lesbians, so if we have any photographs that there are white people in, we just cross them out. Now come with me and I'll show you the files. I also saw that people had been writing down names of black lesbians, recording almost like it had been ritualized, the need to identify an absence. Anecdotally, the largest number of inquiries for the Lesbian Hearst Archives has been Black Lesbian Inquiry, right? And the assumption with, you might not have anything, but there may be nothing there, but I'm going to ask this possibly unanswerable question, and we're like, here's everything, you know, like, here's all the stuff, right? Eleven years ago, I started archiving this organization called Salsa Soul Sisters, which was the first Black lesbian organization in the country, which I thought was going to be a summer project. <laughs> It was really this call to find, like, who were the Black lesbians? Like, what were they doing? Salsa Soul uh, was, de was developed because of women's lack of services, uh, discrimination, um, health, lack of health care, that we just needed to be with each other. Uh, the network to sit down and talk about some of the problems that we ran into. I marched out of my shoes. We were building a movement. Cassandra Grant came with this box and she said, so I am the arbiter of the Salsa Soul Sisters archive and I need someone to take it. And I was just like, hi. <laughs> Here are the people right here. Newsletters, flyers, t-shirts, music, retreats. I mean, there was so much activity. 
we started a journey of naming what would the collection look like? How would we get it into the archives? Who has stuff? Where is it going to land? It took a lot of trust, a lot of friendship gathering. I went to people's houses. I met their families, right? Like I got married and had a, my wedding in the house of one of the salsa soul women. Like we had to become community. We took their collection. We had a ceremony. And then I was like, whew, we're done. Oh, no, no, no. Because then it was, so what next? Where's the website? Where's the street named after us? And I'm like, well, you know, an archive is really meant to preserve and secure and document, right? They were just like, no, no, no. So since 2017, we've had exhibitions at the New York Historical Society, at the Robert Blackburn Printmaking Gallery. Brooklyn College Library had a six-month exhibition. It was really beautiful. And then we had an intern who digitized the exhibit and then created an Omeka site for it. During the process of this being published, Donna, Donna Allegra was just like, Sean, like, do you have my book? Do you have my book in the archives? It was in the archives, but she wanted to make sure. And she said, we have to meet because I have stuff in my apartment. And that was in November. Say that deep into the night, a house of sisters sat up telling each other their hopes and dreams, eased their young anxieties, telling their experiences, passing on their knowledge of life, that their love for all each other was anchored in ways of differences, all showing the many ways of being. Maybe that January, we hear that Donna Allegra was in her apartment for two weeks. Nobody knew that her body was just there and unknown. And it was Saskia Sheffer, one of the Lesbianhurst Archives coordinators, a white woman as well, who hardly knew Donna, who went to her house in a hazmat suit because there was decay and to go through her stuff and to decide on her own what to take. That should have been on us. Like we should have that process down, right? And then very shortly after, Jean Wimberly, who I also was very close with, who I also broke bread in her home. Big issues, where, where are we going? And sitting down and talking and deciding where we want to go. This fly dapper butch woman also passed like a few months later and so the continual list of the ancestors just growing it just makes me have to move faster and faster and do more. You know it's sort of like is that the role of the archive now? Is that how we are moving into this new time? And what does that say for a future, an archival future. That's one of the main ones, getting the youth and the elders together. And talk about where we have been, what it was like for us, and our, our music, our culture, our, our past, and help bring that forward. The initial impetus for LHA was to preserve and to, to retain when I talk to students a lot, I talk to them about criticality and I bring things back to critical race theory and like thinking of the structures we live in, the structures we want to rebuild. How do you move from neutrality? What does it look like in a world where we actually center ourselves and our ancestors and we undo the damage? How do we really connect? Archiving is a tool, archiving is active and archiving is like a community responsibility. In honor of the ancestors of the Salsa Soul Sisters, Arisa Reed, Audrey Lord, Candace Boyce, Carol DaCosta, Sinan Moreno, Christian O'Neill, Diane R. Reed, Dorothy Moore, Aristine Williams, 
Georgia M. Brooks, Inez Harrison or Tippy, Ira Jeffries, Jean Gray, Lee Leocadio Daniels, Luvenia Louise Pinson, Mari Blackwell, Monica Ramson, Pat Chin, Rose Morgan, Phyllis Clay, Sandy Adida Oxios, Sylvia Witz Vitali, and Yvonne Maua Flowers. Promised Land, Religious Ideology and Solar Punk Science Fiction, written by Rob Cameron. The full version of this essay was originally published on June 9, 2020, The New Modality Magazine. Octavia Butler, the black science fiction author to whom all others were compared until the coming of N.K. Jemisin, published the novel Parable of the Sower in 1993. Her first fictional near-future, Southern California, will become but one of the newly red-lined regions earmarked for a corner pocket of hell, because the end is nigh. No kaiju necessary. We will die of consumption after a 50-plus year bender drunk on neoliberal, late-stage, capitalist moonshine. A joke, because I'm afraid. Not only is this specific dystopia possible, but Butler seems to have predicted it 27 years ago. Parable of the Sower is set somewhere in the 2020s during a presidential election in which the candidate's campaign slogan is Make America Great Again. Oh yes, this is a horrible present. I ordered the exact opposite of this nightmare. I asked for solar punk. Solar punk is the environmentally conscious speculative arts movement that best navigates the terrors ahead. Detractors label it a kind of Pollyanna utopianism full of empty calories. Oh, it's true that the Google replicator machine will serve up a visual feast of enforested skyscrapers and lush solar energy mushroom cities, possibly under the sea, possibly shared with amiable buck-toothed invertebrae with ageless comic timing. In truth, solar punk is a functional AF. The primary colors of its aura are red, orange, and yellow, courageously compassionate, creatively scientific, and awakened interdependence. In many ways, it can be more rigorous than so-called hard science fiction. I'm quoting Kim Stanley Robinson, author of New York 2140, among many other groundbreaking stories of ecofiction. He takes issue with the viral overfixation of punk, Google punk genres, and see how many you get. However, at Boscon 57, one of the largest science fiction conventions in the country, where he was guest of honor, Robinson described a genre full of futures to defy the Anthropocene. Stories where sacrifices are made, but in the end, we find ways to survive and become wise. I told him afterwards that it sounded like solar punk, and he stage whispered, that's because it is. Yet, after reading and enjoying these stories, I noticed a pattern. The viewpoint characters of solar punk stories roughly fall into categories with the same confluences. There are many intrepid scientists racing the clock to preserve life or help us adapt, young makers and biotech tinkerers, the communities that come together. There's some spillover from the makers into the anarchists, people who thrive on the leftmost bleeding edge of society, breaking rules that should never have been. 
But many solo punk characters, and most salient to this conversation, are young people, often women of color, adjusting to the dangers of the new normal brought on by severe environmental changes and doing so in ways their elders did not have the foresight or perspective to do themselves. All these stories showcase new or repurposed material resources and technologies for increased sustainability. Clearly these voices are necessary, but there's something missing. The intersection with communities of faith is roped off. The heroine of Butler's Parable of the Sore is Lauren Oya Olamina. She will be little more than a child before inevitable mayhem and metastasized commodified suffering rolls upon her family, murders everyone, and destroys what is left of her community. She will escape with her life, but orphaned and traumatized. What is she to do? Step one, become a self-made messiah. Step two, re-engineer God. Step three, save humanity. Hers is an incredible story. She very much fits the mold of solar punk heroines with one exception. She's a faith leader. Why aren't there more characters like her? Where are the Griots and Santeras? Where are the Bodhisattvas and the Saints, those who speak the languages of Heaven's Heart? Where are the Loran Oya Olaminas? Ideology, the dogmatic kind, has often been the death of freethinkers and first adopters. It has produced conservative paradigms that sustained brutal hierarchies, birthed unforgettable monsters, and poured bleach on other people's history. But too often to ignore, the opposite has also been the case. Tibetan Buddhism, the Dalai Lama, comes to mind. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the nonviolent civil rights era organizing group whose goal was to redeem the soul of America, was not an aberration of history. Martin Luther King may have been a goat, but if time's memory was more robust, his would not be the only spirit we commune with on special occasions. So whether it has been a purposeful or subconscious omission, this issue must be addressed for solar punk to move beyond artists and progressive secularists. We need to mainstream the radical. If solar punk could be a real boy, anti-racism would be in its DNA. Keep that in mind when I tell you that the U.S. Census projects that by the year 2045, the majority of the U.S. population will be people of color, already the case for residents under the age of 18. And the majority of us profess some kind of faith. In 2008, when last Pew Research asked the question, 95% of those surveyed reported belief in a higher power of some kind. Even among scientists, the believers were in the majority. Both numbers go up if you include the rest of the world, particularly the black and brown parts. So for solar punk to be properly inclusive of us in possible futures, it would be a mistake to black box significant guiding tenets because of an aversion to dominant ideologies and the much discussed potential for evil in organized religion. Evil is everywhere. Search for kittens on your favorite browser and scroll down for about 30 seconds. There will be evil. Claudia Arsenault, author of Wings of Revival, a solar punk dragon anthology tells us that solar punk should work from the existing technologies, from things we already know are possible. This is key. There is no greater or more fundamental technology than culture. It and the arc of ideologies that arise from it are more than just peer pressure from dead people. Culture is software, and more often than not, that includes a spiritual platform. 
The metaphor of computer software is not meant to emphasize any kind of Cartesian separation between body and spirit. Instead, it speaks to their interdependence and intersubjectivity, the networked nature of community, of us. Like software and hardware, one is nothing without the other. We are not Vulcans. It is only through the manifold aspects of the computer software interface that connected narratives, symbols, metaphors, categories, and systems of conceptual associations we live by and that live in us that we can temporarily arrest and process existence, which is largely beyond complete description, constantly in flux, and inherently unknowable, in essence, divine. While walking through the forest, a disciple asked the Buddha if he had taught all there was to know about the universe. Gautama responded after picking up a handful of leaves. The amount he had taught, in relation to the knowledge of the universe, was comparable to the number of leaves in his hand in relation to the forest. I teach only this. What is necessary for the relieving of suffering? One might get the impression that for many of the characters in solar punk stories, this has been their first run-in with man-made, life-obliterating disaster. Not so with Afrofuturists. We are quite familiar with the boom-and-bust cycle of calamity existing simultaneously in various dimensions of dystopia. The concept of the usable past as a key tenet of solar punk and a touchstone between it and works that classify as Afrofuturist. Our cultural memory is what energizes resilience under stress, and it's often coded into religion. In the Experiential Caribbean by Pablo Gomez, we find Black Caribbean knowledge producers embraced the crisis of cultural uprooting of the 17th century to create new forms of knowledge making that reasserted the power of human experience to make truthful claims about nature. They were, active receptors, shapers, and most importantly, accumulating agents creating new ideological algorithms. Solarpunk is all about collaboration with, rather than competition over. However, history shows us that often before one can collaborate, one must take power to create knowledge. Over the course of writing Parable of the Sower, Butler struggled with the idea of power-seeking as the quest, but she came to realize that it was a tool necessary to survive and build something new. Solarpunk would do well to incorporate this lesson. I will leave you with these founding axioms written by Lauren Oya Olamina in her Book of Life. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Octavia Butler's novel is indeed a kind of parable, a creation tale of a new cult ideology that supports science. Solarpunk has, by accident of adaptation, evolved into a community with synonymous language to the Book of Life and syncretic or amalgamating instincts. So, although Octavia Butler didn't consider herself an Afrofuturist, and Olamina's goal was to take humanity to other planets rather than try and save this one, there are lessons here that solar punk can easily repurpose, which is kind of its thing. Change needs to happen before Olamina's timeline completely merges with our own. People are less likely to take risks on new ideas when hope is precarious. Anything new may be automatically categorized as dangerous and invasive, but if it's coming from within their own narrative, 
a solar punk rewiring would not be so scary. Indeed, it might be a revelation of the promised land. In honor of Black History Month, I'd like to talk about history in general, black history in particular, and specifically about my family history. A lot of times people think that history is the story of big ships moving on the ocean and important people making decisions. It's that, but it's also the story of individuals trying to find a way and families and where they were and where they've been. It's important to know these stories. So my family story goes like this. My father's family was on a farm or a plantation in Buckingham County, Virginia in the mid-1850s. The farm was owned by a man named Watt Riddle. Watt Riddle owned land, he owned animals, and he supposedly owned people. He also had two sons, a black son and a white son. The white son was Watt Riddle Jr., who he begat by his wife, and the black son was Henry Riddle, who he begat by a black woman whose name we do not know, and that's my great-great-grandfather, Henry Riddle. Henry was married to a woman named Susan on the Buckley Plantation, not far away, and they had seven kids. Now, it came that the Buckley Plantation was under financial duress. Buckley wanted to keep his farm, and so he realized he was going to have to sell off some of his slaves. So he was getting ready to offer Susan and her two youngest sons, James Buchanan Riddle and John Morton Riddle, John Morton Riddle being my great-grandfather. This was about a couple of years before the beginning of the Civil War. He was going to sell them off and save his farm. But the oldest daughter, Anna Eliza Riddle, who was 11, she offered herself for sale in order to save the family, to keep the family together, to keep the mother with the rest of the children, particularly the two younger children, so they could be near their father. She offered herself into bondage, into brutality, into sexual degradation because she was becoming of that age. She offered that to save the family, but she couldn't get enough money for her. So they did indeed sell Susan and the two young boys just before the Civil War. They were gone. Nobody knew exactly where they were or how to reach them. The war came. And then after the war, after the long war, families tried to reunite. Families that were newly supposedly free, they wanted to get back together with relatives who had been sold down the river. When people would meet, and they would be working someplace or wandering someplace, and around the campfire they would say, Hey, your last name is Riddle. I met some Riddles who were down the way. Did you ever know a John Riddle? Did you ever know a James Riddle? Did you know a Michael Riddle? And so this is how the families managed to get back together. These stories of who saw whom where and where people had gone were very important. When the family got back together, John Morton Riddle, my great-grandfather, he became the first black in Buckingham County to get a teaching license. And so he was teaching people to read and write, which was very important in those days. And by that time, his sister, his older sister, Anna Eliza Riddle, had gotten married. She met a man named Thomas Woodson, who came down from another part of Virginia, and they had children, including a child named Carter G. Woodson. You may have heard of Carter G. Woodson because he is the person who started Black History Month. He actually started it as Negro History Week, the week being the week between Frederick Douglass's birthday and Abraham Lincoln's birthday. 
It later became Negro History Month, and as we changed, it became Black History Month as we know it. He started that. The reason he was interested in history was it was important to gather the histories of the migrations of black families and individuals throughout the South after the Civil War as a means of tracking where people were and helping people make the connections with their relatives from whom they had been separated forcibly by slavery and war. So his first books were sort of these kind of histories, you know, the Smiths moved this way, so-and-so went to Louisiana, and so forth. This was what black history started as. And then as he began to realize how important this was, he began to start creating a history of black people in the United States, of the Africans who had come here. And he began to realize something very, very important, and this is not to be lost in the story of history. He began to realize that the story of who people are and what they had done to overcome and how they had existed in the land was incredibly important to their survival. In fact, he said that if a person wanted to make you come in through the back door, it would be better for them to teach you that the back door is good than to force you to come in through the back door. So he understood that it was very important, the story that a person had in their mind about who they were. He didn't have a federal grant. He didn't have permission from authority. There wasn't a congressional day of black recognition passed. He did it because it needed to be done. So he began writing books, but then he also wrote something called the Journal of Negro Life and History. So he collected the stories from other people, and he studied the history of black people, not just the stories themselves, but how it's constructed, and really established a culture around the collection of history. Published it for decades. Decades. It's in libraries. In fact, as it turns out, my father, who is an artist, John Riddle, I used to go to the library in Atlanta all the time. As he was doing his art, he would do his research and study. And one day when he was reading the journal, he looked and he saw an obituary. The obituary was for John Morton Riddle. It's a name that was familiar to him because that was his grandfather's name. And as he read the obituary that extolled the virtues and kindness of the man that taught Carter G. Woodson how to read and write, he realized that this was indeed his grandfather. And that Carter G. Woodson was his father's first cousin. Understanding this is what connected my father and his siblings back to the stories of Anna Eliza Riddle and John Morton Riddle. I mean, we understood some of these stories. We had some bits and pieces of the stories, but we didn't have the whole picture. And the only reason we had the whole picture is because Carter G. Woodson wrote it down. And the only reason he was able to write it down was because John Morton Riddle became a teacher and taught him how to read and write. And so these stories that are valuable to my family, they're preserved because of the understanding of the need for black history. So let's go back to this story, this story of Anna Eliza Riddle. If you go back to that time in 1858, Anna Eliza Riddle was the lowest of the low. She's an 11-year-old. She's getting ready to sell herself off to the highest bidder to save her family. When you look at, look at her during that time, you would understand you don't want to be her. Who wants to be her? Nobody wants to be her. It's horrible. And then you look at Watt Riddle. 
Wat Riddle owned land. He owned people. He had power. He had money. He had a son who had a family that was being sold and split up, and he didn't step in to keep that family together. Even knowing, as he must have known, in the back of his mind somewhere, he must have known that those were his grandchildren that were being sold off. That that was his daughter-in-law that was being sold off. That that was his son's family that was being sold off. And so here we are 150 years later. Maybe more, 160 years later. We look at Anna Eliza Riddle, who was the lowest of the low, and we look at Watt Riddle, who was the highest of the high. And who do you want to be? If you go tell this story in a room full of people, of a hundred people, there may be one or two that may identify with Watt Riddle, but most people want to be Eliza Riddle. But why? Because she had character. She had dignity. She stood up, and she did what she could to help her family survive. And then you have Watt Riddle, who had the power to keep his family together, and he couldn't even acknowledge that it was his family. Nobody wants to be him. The facts are the facts. The facts are consistent no matter how you tell the story. But when you tell that story and you understand the meaning of that story, when you understand the meaning of the characters in that story, then you understand also those are one of many stories that helped us understand who we are, where we stood, where we came from, how we got to be where we are now, and where we need to go in the future. That's what history is. History is just not a compendium of factual information that's looked at by a robot. History is the narrative of how the people survived. Every family has those stories. Your family has those stories. My family has those stories. You may not even realize that you've heard those stories. Those are the stories that make you who you are. And you must hold them dear. History is not something somebody else determines. History is what you decide the story is. Hold on to your story. Stand tall. Share them with the future. Have a happy Black History Month. Hey everybody, it's me, Griff City. As you probably know, all month it's Black History Month. And... Well, I have something planned. Let's get into it. This is Storytelling by Griffin. Once there was a little girl that was born in Syracuse, New York in 1970. When she was nine, her brother encouraged her to become an aerospace engineer and NASA astronaut. She wanted to be an astronaut. In 2009, she was selected to be in the 2009 NASA group. Her name was Jeanette Epps. She went to the University of Maryland. Jeanette Epps is going to be the first black woman to join the ISS. Her mission to the International Space Station launches later in 2021. Thank you for listening. Brooklyn! Brooklyn, USA is produced by me, Kyrell Palmer. And me, Emily Bogosian. And me, Shirin Barry. And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Mayumi Sata. With help this week from Brick Radio Junior correspondent Griff City, Taylor Cook, Lauren Germain, Rob Cameron, The New Modality, Tony Riddle, Nathan Finch, Devon Blackwell, Fred Brown, Louis Finley, Kyla Primus, 
and Interface Archive. You can find a link to the video version of Devin's piece, Friends Who Remember, and a link to the full version of Rob Cameron's essay, Promised Land, Religious Ideology in Solar Punk Science Fiction, in the show notes. If you want to speculate about the future, reflect on the past, tell us a story, or somehow end up on our podcast, check the show notes for a link to a guide on recording a voice member on your mobile phone and sending it to us on the internet. If you like what you hear or think we missed something, comment, like, share, and subscribe. And follow Brick TV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit us at www.brickmedia.org slash radio. Have a happy Black History Month. Bye-bye.